Good morning again, Redeemer. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn to Acts chapter 28. Acts 28. And as you make your way there, I just want to let you know that we're going to be finishing Acts this morning and uh, went back and looked and we started in the book of Acts January the 17th, 2021. So you guys have been uh, patient with us as we have uh, made our way through that book. Just to give you a heads up on where we're going, uh, we'll spend eight weeks looking at the I Am Statements of Christ uh, starting next week. And it'll help us uh, prepare our hearts for Easter. Uh, we'll spend some time in the Psalms this summer. And Lord willing, we'll be in, in 1 Corinthians this fall. So um, praise God for being able to uh, work through uh, these beautiful sections of God's Word. This is Acts 28. I'll start in verse 17. Paul is in Rome. He had been walked into Rome by those he called brothers. And these were certainly Christians. And he took courage once they came out to meet him some 40 miles uh, on the highway and walked him in so that he did not walk alone. Now that he is in Rome, he takes a break for three days and then calls uh, his other brothers, at least brothers of the flesh, the Jews. After three days, Paul called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, Yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, speaking of Christianity, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. And from morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull and with their eyes they can barely, with their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn to me and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Pray, me. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you again for meeting with your people. Thank you for your word and thank you for what Luke has deposited in scripture for us. 
Thank you, Holy Spirit, that no prophecy, no things written were ever originated in the hearts of mere mortals, but these men were carried along as your Spirit carried them. You breathed Father, would you uh, be with us now? Would you build us up in the faith and uh, bless your own name? Amen. I've entitled our time an important ending of a chapter of the story that is still being written. That's, what I, that's the way I want you to look at the ending of the book of Acts. This is an ending, but it's an ending of a chapter of a story that is still being written by the Holy Spirit. Edward Packard created what has become known as the Choose Your Own Adventure Books. He did this in 1970, and it took him about nine years to finally find a publisher, Bantam, who would actually take a risk and do mass publication of these types of books. And from 1979 to 1998, 250 million of the Choose Your Own Adventure books were printed and purchased. Now, what is a Choose Your Own Adventure book? I loved them as a kid, by the way. But here's what, what sets them apart. The reader was actually in the driver's seat of the book. In other words, the reader at critical junctures in the book had a choice. You could actually choose how the story ended. And so, for example, you might hear a story of, of a man and a woman driving down this road and, and a blizzard comes and they run out of gas. And then it asks you, what do you, the reader, want to do? If you want to walk a quarter of a mile down the road to the house with the light on, turn to page 24. If you, the reader, want, to, want this character to stay in the car and try to cover up with blankets and endure the cold during the night, you turn to the next page. Or if you, the reader, want the characters in the story to trust the guy driving by in a four by four and get in the car with him, then you turn to page 37. Now, you, you have no idea if you're going to be attacked by a bear if you choose to walk a quarter of a mile. You have no idea if someone's going to be home and let you enter their house to give you shelter and food for the night. You have no idea if the person driving by is like a serial killer who might, you might not make it. And so you, the reader, get to choose what the character does and you turn to the appropriate page. You, the reader, get to impact the ending of the story. I don't know about you, but I kind of wish that acts were like that. I wish that, that I were in the driver's seat because I would kind of do things differently. When they tried to sail to Rome, if God were asking me, hey, Pastor L, do you want us to sail to Rome or do you want us to listen to Paul and wait? I'm probably the cautious dude and say, yeah, we're going to wait. We're not going to do that. But the, the Holy Spirit's not asking me that. When they land in Malta, they have a choice. Do we go associate with these barbarians and, and then walk into their house, right? How do I know they're not cannibals, right? And we certainly wouldn't end the book this way, would we? Think about all that Luke has been preparing us for. Paul has appealed to Caesar. 
And this book does not end with him being before Caesar. We know Paul died, and Luke devotes over half of Acts to the Apostle Paul. I kind of want to know what happened to the brother. And if he did make it to Caesar, what did he say? Did he have the same courage he had with Agrippa and with Festus and with Felix? Like, like did he uh, shrink under pressure and power? And here's the thing. Luke doesn't tell us. Some scholars say that this is for practical reasons, that maybe Luke says he has ran out of scroll. There are guys who study this stuff. It's not me, and I don't have the scroll, and I don't know if it was codex right now where they're printing these sheets on. I, I don't know. Some have said that this is chronological, that if it ends with two years of Paul doing this, and, and Luke is on the clock, right? He's been commissioned by a wealthy man named Theophilus, and maybe Theophilus is like, come on, man, you on the clock. You got to send me something. And Luke is like, well, I don't have anything to give you. Well, here, let me tie a neat bow on this and just give you this. Maybe it's chronological. I don't, I don't think so. I don't know. What if it's theological, though? What if when you piece together 2 Timothy and Colossians and Philippians and Ephesians and Philemon, that we actually know more than we think? And the Holy Spirit is choosing not to answer the questions that we want to put on this text. It's as if the Holy Spirit is practicing theological minimalism. What is that? The minimalist decorating style says this. It's an exercise in restraint where space and lighting and objects play equally important roles This style demands that you pare down your furnishings to the bare essentials so that you are left with a set of curated objects that deliver the maximum impact. Let me put that in layman's terms, right? I just I just got that definition. It used to be that when you decorated your house, you filled every nook and cranny with stuff. I want a coffee table here, another coffee table there, a book table here. I want paintings on this wall and that wall and that wall. I want a couch here and a love seat over here and a recliner here. That the goal in old design was to pack in as much stuff as you can. And then the minimalistic design approach says, wait a minute. No, no. If you want to have the maximum impact, then lesser is better. Take that extra couch out and just leave it open space. Take all of those pictures off the wall and put like your really good pictures. Use like one piece of really good furniture. It's a design technique where you take clutter away and you let a few things into the space. And by doing that, the few things that you do have, they pop. There you go. I heard somebody say pop. I think that's what the Holy Spirit is doing. We want to know about Paul, how he died, when he died. We want to know about Caesar and what he said and if he said it. And it's as if the Holy Spirit is saying, that clutters my ending. What I want you to focus on is a few powerful things. Not Paul, not how he died not Caesar, not his defense. 
I'm going to give you two things that I want you to hone in on. And those two things are important. And here's what I want to tell you. This important ending, it emphasizes the importance of the kingdom of God. And this important ending enlists you to serve the king of the kingdom. If you walk away with those two things, you will have understood the book of Acts and the ending that the Holy Spirit wants us to take to heart. Let's look at the first thing. The, this important ending emphasizes the importance of the kingdom. Now, on two different occasions, we're told that Paul preaches. Look at verse 23 with me. The Jews come, the, the leaders of the Jews come, and when they come, notice what, what Paul does. Look at verse 23. He came and introduced himself in verses 17 through 22. They scheduled a date in the future, and then they came to him at his lodging in great numbers, and from morning till evening he expounded to them testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them of Jesus, right? So that's the first thing. What did Paul talk about when the Jews came, the kingdom of God? Now look at the end. Look at verse 30. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is Paul. If you were a Jew asking Paul, what are you teaching me today? The kingdom of God. What are you teaching me tomorrow? The kingdom of God. What are you teaching me next year? The kingdom of God. If you were a Gentile meeting Paul, what are we talking about today? The kingdom of God. What about next year? The kingdom of God. Now, you never see Paul talking about the kingdom of God and not the king of the kingdom, who is Jesus. And so he's talking about the kingdom and Jesus. And so here's why that's important. You cannot see the kingdom without knowing the king. And you cannot have the king without the kingdom. They are inseparable. They go hand in hand. Paul is building out a seminary curriculum, and you will get a master's of divinity in the kingdom of God. Now, this is intentional. We, 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 I think it's tempting to kind of, th th these are throwaway verses, but it's not. If you look at how Acts begins, I'm going to read this, read this to you. Acts 1, verse 3, he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, and he appeared to them for 40 days, and he spoke about the kingdom of God. Who is that? That's Jesus. You want to know what Jesus did for 40 days? I think that's kind of important. You, just, you were just raised from the dead. You just walked out of the grave. You just crushed Satan. You have just been exalted. And what do you talk about for 40 days? Acts says the kingdom of God. If you turn to Acts 14, Paul has been beaten and stoned in Lystra, and he picks himself up, and guess what he says? Through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of God. Acts 14 is a scene. It's not a coincidence that when Acts ends, Paul is still talking about the kingdom of God. It stayed on Paul's lips because it stayed on Jesus's lips. It stayed on Paul's lips. And if with the, with the eyes of faith, you'll realize that it stays on his fingertips. 
You can barely read an epistle written by Paul and he does not talk about the kingdom of God. Romans, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians, the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in real power right here and right now. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Not the sexually immoral, the idolaters, the adulterers, the men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's like all of us. We're all condemned there. By ourselves, we will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says in 1 Thessalonians, this is why I exhorted you to walk in a manner worthy of the kingdom of God. It's everywhere. And once you see it, you can't unsee it. It's all in the scriptures. Why? Because this isn't just an idea for Paul. This is a new reality. He lives in the kingdom of God. And when you look at what the scriptures teach us about the kingdom, it's here. And it's coming in its fullness more in the future. You can't be born in it. You have to be reborn. And our call to worship this morning, it's like a woman with leaven. And you work that leaven in the loaf and before you know it, it works its way all through. It's like a seed that has been planted that starts really small, but then it stretches out branches everywhere, so much so that it's not the birds, but it's the people of the earth in every nook and cranny come to the kingdom to find rest, that this kingdom is temporal. It's concerned with the here and now and the future, that it has ethical obligations. It clashes with the kingdom of this world. It's not mere work, words, but in power. It's as real as the chair you're sitting in right now. Well, what is it? Goldsworthy says that it's God's people living in God's place under God's power. And I'd add one element to it. Under God's person that it has to do with a place, it has to do with a people, it has to do with God's power, and it has to do with his power through a person. And you see this, right, in, 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 in creation, in the beginning, we're Eden, we're given names of a place, and we were his people made in his image. And God as a, a person, the, 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 the triune God is walking in our midst and he is exerting his rule over us, protecting us from, from death and from, from the grave. Like, like you get this kingdom, that, that Eden is a little kingdom and then it is tarnished because we switch loyalty from the king of the garden to a serpent and then when we bowed the knee to Satan and believed him, guess what instantly happened? Our place became corrupted. Thorns and thistles began to grow, and we were kicked out of the place 
Now, and, and we were not perfect. We were not upright. We became sinners, fallen, broken people. And here is the good news. God's promise from the beginning of time was to send a person to redeem a people, to give us a place that we might live and live under his rulership. That that is where all of the scripture is going. And so when you read the story of Exodus, you're not just reading historical things that happened to these random people. No, you are reading the clashing of the kingdoms. You are reading about a Pharaoh who thinks he's God. And you're reading about a people who are crying out to their God. And you're reading about the love that God has for his people so that God will tell this king who thinks he's the king of the earth, you are not king. I'm the king and I want my people and you let them go that they may come out of Egypt and come over here into my land and know me and I will protect them and I will love them and I will dwell within them with them it's the clashing of the kingdoms that's the story of scripture you see God over and over and over and over again relentless to move towards his people through human mediators like Moses through human mediators like Jeremiah through human mediators like priests and here's the thing men can't get right all of God's leaders men and women fall short until one comes his son, groomed from all eternity to rescue his people, to lay down his life, to love them with his heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love God with his heart, soul, mind, and strength, to step his foot on the neck of Satan, to banish him, to imprison him in the lake of fire forever, to make a place for us, a home for us, to give us his peace. Like that is the story of scripture and that is what Paul is unpacking for them. The time is now. The kingdom has come. And here's what Luke does. If we have a little, if we do a little detective work, you can actually see that this is a case of show and tell. All right, kids, I used to love show and tell. I used to love it. I'm just not going to talk about a pet or talk about my favorite sneakers or talk about whatever I like. I want the day where the teacher lets me bring it to the classroom to show the class. I don't want to just tell you about it. I want to show it to you. That is what Luke is doing here, y'all. He is telling us what Paul is preaching about. But if we would just look with faith, he said, let me show you this. People, kingdom people. The kingdom is here. Did you notice? Look, look at what Paul calls the Jews in verse 17. Three days, three days later, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, what? Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers. So at that point in Paul's interaction with them, he is calling them what? We're brothers. These are our fathers, our cultures. Now, Look over at verse 25. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul and made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right and saying to your fathers. Y'all catch that? Which one is it, Paul? Are y'all brothers or are y'all not brothers? 
Are we brothers? Or do you notice what Paul is doing? He is now distancing himself from the men that he just called brothers. Now, why? Why would he now say, that's y'all, that that ain't me? You know why? It's because they have rejected the Messiah. They have hardened their hearts. They would not hear and believe and repent. And what Paul is actually saying, we're alike and we come from the same stock and we, we read the same scriptures. But here's the thing. We are no longer brothers. You are of your father, the enemy. My true brothers are the brothers who welcome me and welcome Christ, who walk me into Rome. That's the kingdom of God that is driving a wedge between ethnic relationship. What about kingdom power? Paul tells us that he's in chains. He can't go to the bathroom without a soldier following him. He can't write an epistle without a soldier over him. And then look at, think about what Paul says in in, in 2 Timothy. I am suffering. I am bound in chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. You catch that? I'm in chains, but the word of God is not in chains. And it's actually kind of humorous that look at how this story ends. Paul is in chains, and then look at what happened in verse 30. He lived there two years in his own rented apartment, and he welcomed all who came to him. That's what, you know what God is saying? You can chain my servant, but you can't chain my gospel. I'm going to bring people, if he can't go out there to them, I'm so enthroned and I so run this world that I will bring people to him to hear the good news. You can't stop my power, says God. What about this place? The kingdom is pushing itself in the nooks and the crannies of the world. Rome was by far one of the most dominant and pervasive kingdoms of all time. And then think about what Paul says happens in Philippians. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. It has become known to all the imperial guard that I suffer for Jesus. Whoa, you hear that? So think about this image. Paul is writing and he got a soldier chained to him for four to six hours. And then they relieve each other. Another soldier comes and is, and, and is chained to Paul for another four to six hours. And this goes on and on and on and on. And then when Paul writes Philippians, you know what he says? I see it. I see the kingdom of God is here in power because as I'm writing these epistles, these soldiers saying, Paul, what you writing? Yeah, we're talking about Jesus today. Paul, what you reading? Yeah, I'm reading the Pentateuch. Paul, talk to me about the Messiah, so much so that the entire imperial guard hears about Jesus. That is God taking over a place. Think about how Paul ends Philippians. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those in Caesar's household. You hear that? That kingdom is not bound to that room. Caesar's household. Caesar's household is hearing about Jesus. And Paul says, by the way, they greet you. 
Do you understand what's happening? This is why Luke ends and, and, and Luke will not mention Caesar because there's another king on the throne whose name is Christ. This is why Acts ends and we're not hearing about Paul's death. Paul says, don't you know, I must decrease, Christ must increase. The, the only death you need to know about is the one that happened on Calvary for your sins. Paul ain't died for you. Paul didn't be, he wasn't raised from the dead for you. The only person we need to be worshiping and honoring and savoring is Christ. And so when Acts ends, Paul recedes to the background, Caesar recedes to the background, and what stays and looms large is the king and his kingdom, which knows no limits, is unstoppable, enduring forever. And here's the good news. If you know Jesus, you are in the kingdom. You can see, and everything your heart longs for is met in him. Your deepest trials have meaning. They are working in you endurance and grace and hope and faith. Even death for you in the kingdom of Christ is life. You are loved. God is for you. His plans are to prosper you and to do good for you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Your eyes can see his glory and his beauty. If you bow the knee to Jesus, this is yours. This is your new reality. Jesus is using his power right now to love, to serve, and to persevere you until the end. No ruler on this earth has as much power as they think. And you are never beyond the gaze of your king. This is yours. Now, I'm going to close with what, our second and last point. This is your new reality, Christian. The kingdom has come, but this ending also enlists you to serve the king of the kingdom. I want you to think about what we know about Rome at this point. In, in, in the book of Acts, Acts 18, y'all might remember that we were told that Paul went to Corinth and that he hung out with Aquila and Priscilla. He lived with them and he stayed with them and served with them. What Luke also tells us is, is how they ended up in Corinth. Y'all remember? It says that Claudius was the emperor and he expelled all the Jews out of Rome. And so when we read Acts 18, the Jews have been sent out of Rome by an evil emperor. And so when Paul is making his appeal to Rome, he already knows that he can get the business done to him there. And he could Lay low. He could not ruffle any feathers. He could stay quietly in the confines of his house 
and, and, and work on his defense. He could kind of stay out the way is kind of the language that we use when you want to just kind of exist and not ruffle feathers. He could do that. And that's not what Paul does. It says that Paul gets into Rome and he waits three days. Three days to perhaps pray. Three days to perhaps rest up. And then Paul gets to work. Paul calls the Jews, the leading Jews, and, and he has some explaining to do. I mean, have you ever been in a service and someone walks up with, a, with an ankle bracelet on? And you know what your eyes do when you see that, right? I know what mine do. I'm like, man, I wonder, can I, can I give Buddy a ride home? Is he going to get at me, right? I'm just looking with, with kind of just suspicion because if, if you're in chain, if it looks like you've been in trouble, I'm kind of looking at you suspiciously. But on the other hand, like Paul is a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was educated at the feet of Gamaliel. And in terms of the righteousness of the law, he exceeded all of his contemporaries. And so Paul is this oxymoron. He's in chains, but, 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 but he's versed in the scriptures. And so they're curious. Well, tell us how you got here. And he says, well, actually, I'm here for the hope of Israel. That it was our people in Jerusalem who wanted me dead, but there was nothing that I did wrong. And so I appealed to Caesar, and even the Gentiles know that I'm righteous. And they tell Paul, well, we have not heard about you, no letter. All we know about is this Christianity sect that is causing a lot of harm and trouble. And so they, they agree to meet. And on that day, it says that Paul reasons with them from morning till evening about the kingdom using the law of Moses and the prophets. That was Paul's Bible, the Old Testament. And he uses his time to talk to them and point them to Christ from Genesis, from Exodus, from Leviticus, from Numbers, from Deuteronomy, from 1 Samuel, from 2 Samuel, from Jonah, from Isaiah, from Ezekiel, from Habakkuk, from Haggai. He just, just goes in morning till evening. And I wish that I could be a fly on the wall. Paul, what connections did you make to the Messiah? Starting with Genesis. We know that he told them that the one promised to be born of woman will crush the serpent. That's Jesus. We know that he told him when he got to, to Abraham that he's going to be the father of many nations. We know that he told them that, that Abraham's son Isaac was a miraculous birth, but Isaiah prophesied that something even more miraculous than a barren old woman is a virgin is going to conceive and bear child. It's the Messiah. We know that he told them that cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And let me tell you, it was a tree that Jesus Christ hung on for your sins. We're certain that he told them about Jonah, the reluctant prophet who went into the belly of the fish for three days and who came up and about Christ, who was the, who was the willing prophet who went into the belly of the earth and who came out victorious. We know that Paul told them about the suffering servant that we all like sheep have gone astray, each of us in our own ways. And yet upon him, God has laid upon the sins of the world upon him. Paul 
Paul did this from morning until evening, scripture after scripture after scripture after scripture, getting it in, showing that the meta-narrative of scripture is the coming Messiah. And he's here. And his name is Jesus. And you better bow the knee and kiss the son. Do not harden your hearts today. Do not do it. And it's a warning. It's not just a warning for them. This is a warning for us. We have people who come to worship week in and week out. This is a warning. Don't harden your heart towards the things of the Lord. Bow the knee. Kiss the son. Turn from yourself. Trust in him. And then because they refuse to, Paul says, those are your fathers. You're just like your father. You ain't like me. I bow the knee. You're like them. And then notice what happens. Therefore, let it be known that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. And when you get to 30 and 31, it's assumed that the people coming to Paul are the Gentiles. So how does God send salvation to the ends of the earth? By sending Gentiles to Paul. How does the gospel go to the ends of the earth? What, what, what's the means? God entrusts that to his messengers, people like you and me. That's his plan A. And Paul doesn't have a 401k. He doesn't have a wife. He doesn't have kids. He can barely see. He's probably an unattractive old man at this age. He's been beaten with rods and stoned with stones and left for dead. There is nothing impressive about his appearance. What's impressive is his God and his Christ. There's nothing impressive about his living quarters. He's paying rent into an apartment he'll never own. What's impressive are the words that come out of his mouth. And here's the thing. Acts ends with an adverb. Which is Luke's way of saying. The story still continues. It's still being written. And what Luke is calling us to is to not spectate, but to participate. This is an invitation. The story is still being written. And Jesus is delighted to use people like you and me to continue writing. When I was 10, we moved. We moved uh, from 5426 Queen Christina Lane, and we moved to the house that my parents still live in, 5757 Kirkley Drive. And we moved on a day where I was supposed to be in school. And I remember, you know, we have memories, and our memories are from photos, and the photos trigger the memory. This is not one of those kind of memories. This is like a real memory that I don't have a photo of, but I remember it. Two things I remember about moving into our new house. One was just how black the 
street was. It was like freshly paved, like freshly paved, like it had been paved days before we moved in. I saw a kid get off of, a, off of his bus and ride his skateboard, skateboard down the street. No rocks, just smooth. I don't know why I remember that. Right? I, I remember it. The other thing I remember is all them kids on that street. People across the street. A lot of kids. People next door, two kids. People this way, three kids. People three doors down, three kids. People across the street this way, three kids. I remember seeing bus after bus after bus, and I just watched, and all these buses, and then you see the little bitties get off their bus from North Jackson. Then you see like the, the teenagers get off the bus from Powell. Then you get like the high schoolers get off the bus from Callaway, and I just sat there out of my window watching all of these kids just walk had never seen anything like it. And so I was kind of shy. I sat in, the, in the, the dining room and opened the curtains, and I just watched. These kids came in the, our front yard and were playing football in the street. And I saw this older guy, his, his name was T. He got the ball, and, and where we live, if you wanted to show how fast you were, you ran from one pole to the other pole. One light pole to the other pole. You got to go pole to pole. It's not a race if it's not pole to pole. And if you wanted to be team captain, you went to one pole and you chugged the football as far as you can towards the other pole. And whoever's football went the farthest, you were the captain. And so these guys are out there doing this, slinging the football. And here I am in the house looking out the window. And finally, they're, they're picking teams. And they're one person short. And one of the older guys sees me looking out the window. And I know what's going on now. I'm going to lace these shoes up and I'm going to go out. I'm no longer a spectator, but I can go out there and play. That's how Acts ends, beloved. He ends with the kingdom of God. And it's fun in here. It's hard, but it's fun. And it's beautiful. And it's glorious. And you know what the Holy Spirit is saying to us? Come outside and play. Come play your part in the greatest story still being written by making Jesus believable and beautiful. Let's pray. Father, we bless you, and we thank you so much for your word. Father, I pray two big things. One is open our eyes, help us to see King Jesus on the move, help us to partake of the blessings of being your people. Father, I also pr pray that you will have us to not merely be spectators or consumers. Mobilize us, Lord, to be participants. Help us to give. Help us to practice hospitality. Help us to be strengthened in our inner men and women by your word. And help us to exude the word of God with friends and family and strangers. Do all of this for your glory and for our good, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.